Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Clan houses are an important part of culture for many Alaska Natives. A clan house is both a physical structure and a cultural, spiritual, and political unit. There are many thriving clan houses in Alaska, but there are also many that are caught up in legal limbo and end up in private ownership. Today we'll hear about attempts to repatriate one property in Sitka and restore the power of the clan house. We'll hear more about it right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Countless Western Alaskans have lost subsistence resources, food, and even camps that ties them to their land. Residents are devastated and processing what the loss means to them and their families. Various agencies are still assessing the scope of damage from the storm. KNOM's Davis Hovey reports. Melanie Banke, CEO of Kawarik, Inc., shared with KNOM listeners on Wednesday that the damage to subsistence cabins goes beyond loss of buildings. We've got several people who have um, lost their subsistence cabins and their boats, and we all know that uh, our subsistence cabins aren't just recreational. They're a means for our food security, but also our cultural continuation and they connect us to the land and our ancestors. Banky's point about the cultural connection being affected by the storm has been echoed again and again by Western Alaskans. Darlene Trigg is one of many Nome residents who no longer has a camp for her and her family to enjoy. It was completely washed away by the storm. My mom and dad took it upon themselves to make sure that all of the kids had subsistence foods and it all happened there. My earliest memories are in that building, around that land. It's a part of the foundation of who I am. It's built into my identity. Throughout the Norton Sound region, residents have talked about the impact this storm had on their subsistence lifestyle. Daisy Lockwood Kachiak, the city administrator in Stebbins, told KNOM her community will not have as much food for winter. 100% of the uh, fish racks and fishing supplies for all our subsistence fishermen are gone. The community is requesting food deliveries from various agencies to help sustain them over the coming days. Alaska's congressional delegation has sent a letter to President Joe Biden urging him to approve Governor Dunleavy's request for a major disaster declaration in western Alaska. Reporting in Nome, I'm Davis Hovey. Friday is California Native American Day. This year, the day is the first ever paid holiday for court workers. Native American lawmaker James Ramos successfully introduced a bill in 2021 to allow court personnel to switch Columbus Day for California Native American Day. Ahead of the holiday this week, Ramos talked about the effort and celebrated with bird singers and court officials at the San Bernardino Superior Court, which was streamed online. We're here standing strong for all of our ancestors and the atrocity that has been inflicted upon them to once and for all have a paid holiday to recognize the contributions and the attributions contributions by the California Indian people to the state of California. And we start with the first paid holiday in the state of California. The whole state, 
the whole judicial systems, all 58 counties, to join together in honoring California's first people. Judiciary personnel holidays are set in a civil procedure and the change required legislation. Other staff are covered in a government code. The measure amended that to recognize the holiday. It does not create an additional paid holiday, just an exchange. The bill was supported by tribes and Native organizations. On Thursday, members of Washington State's congressional delegation introduced legislation to help the Puyallup tribe place more than 17 acres of land into trust to spur economic development. The tribe seeks to pursue opportunities at the Port of Tacoma and on the Tacoma waterfront. The proposal is supported by the city, county, and the state's governor. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Did you know 1 in 26 people will develop epilepsy during their lifetime? Or that 1 in 10 people will have a seizure? Call 1-800-332-1000 to speak with an epilepsy information specialist. The Epilepsy Foundation supports this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. In Sitka, Alaska, Tlingit clan houses are slowly disappearing. Property ownership is often caught between traditional customs and the American legal system. But one traditional clan house property was recently saved from private ownership, and there's hope for rebuilding the structure that is a gathering place and spiritual center for the clan. Known as the Point House, it is one of a handful of properties that fell into disrepair. Its prospective return to the clan and planned development offers promise for reviving similar Tlingit clan houses and spurs further conversations around repatriation and preservation of these important cultural touchstones. Today we're going to talk with members of the clan and others about the importance of Tlingit clan houses and how to keep the tradition thriving. Please join our conversation. How does a story about reviving a clan house resonate with you? Give us a call. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our first two guests are joining us from Sitka, Alaska, and and first on the line is Chuck Miller. He is a caretaker of the Platform House. He is Tlingit. Chuck, welcome to Native America Calling. Goodness, Chief. Thank you. Chuck, uh, our next guest, I'm going to go ahead and let you introduce that person for us yourself. All right. Uh, this is my good friend and clan brother, Stutin uh, is his Tlingit name. Uh, he's from the Point House. He's Kiksadi Raven Frog Clan. And his English name is Jericho Blang. Thank you for letting me introduce him. Thank you for that warm introduction, Chuck. Jerick, hello. Thank you for joining us as well. Yeah, thanks for having us. Good morning. Jarek, you've been working to reclaim this property that your clan's people lost legal rights to some years ago. Please start us off by explaining how did that happen? 
Well, um, uh, a native elder that I knew who lived in the village behind that house, we had gone for a walk one day, and I'm familiar with the property because it's, as it stands now, is undeveloped. So it's essentially an empty lot. And we casually walked by it one day, and she pointed to the property, and she said, Jarek, that property belongs to you. And and it sounded weird to me. I I didn't know what she meant by that, so I didn't really address it. And I I was dismissive of it at the time, but later after we went home, she explained to me that my um, clan house used to exist there. And it spurred an international conversation of um, what what that was and who it belonged to and who had lived there. And I had had family members who, I guess, in the past had tried to repatriate the said land. And, and um, yeah, so that's how the conversation started was just a casual walk to the village and um, someone pointing out that there was something left that felt unfinished. So the original home or the, the structure itself, if I'm not mistaken, was torn down around 25 years ago, and now it's just uh, a lot. I think, I think I've heard 1997 um, was when it was taken down. So um, yeah, doing the math from that is about 25 years ago. But currently, yeah, it's a 1,697-square-foot lot in historic downtown Sitka. So how was it then, again, that, that it um, you know, this is a clan house, it's uh, – Many people in this clan have rights to this home, consider it their property. How was it that the, the clan lost those those ownership rights? Well, I'm not going to use names because they've asked to be left out of the conversation for this, but essentially my great-grandma, who we're a matrilineal culture, so our identities often come from matrilineal side. Um, the My great-grandmother's brother was the last housemaster in that clan house. It's also who my Clinkett name comes from. Um, so I'm not sure if he didn't have children. I'm, I'm not quite up to that, but ultimately when he passed, it was willed to his granddaughters and they wouldn't be of his clan because we're a matrilineal culture. So then it fell out of Kixadi clan hands. And that's how I got involved with them was just, you know, a simple property search. I just did a Google or a Google search on the city website just to see who they were. And then I cross Facebook them and, and realized that, um, I could get in touch with them. And, and so maybe it was an awkward initial phone call uh, when I when I reached out to them, but now realizing that they're my family members. But, I mean, in that one generation, um, you lose track of people. We didn't know each other, and, um, but didn't know I had them as family to begin with. So that's how I got a hold of them. So like in, in, in many Native cultures, uh, land, property, it's passed on matrilineally, so in this case, um, that didn't happen. The land was not passed on matrilineally. And why? Why was that? Why was that? Why? Why did that? Why did this family or this relative of yours choose to do it differently than what was historically and culturally the norm? Well, I don't actually think that that was their choice. I just think that the Bureau of Indian Affairs does things in Western culture. So next of kin would not necessarily be next of you know. Uh, matrilineal kin. I think Chuck can maybe elaborate on that. Chuck's living in a in a home that has used the proper um, channels to go about things, and I I would defer to him to answer how that that, that should work more. We had a, a little technical difficulty there. I think we did lose Chuck. So let's go ahead and just hold off on those questions. Um, you know, re- regarding um, you know how you know, more that that history of of the Point House and, and how it law or the clan members lost possession or that those ownership. Uh, rights to it. But can you tell us a little bit more ab- about what's going on now in the present? So you're currently engaged in um, 
gaining possession of Point House for the benefit of your clans people. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, we went, we went through the process. So everything is uh, managed through Bureau of Indian Affairs. So um, we've started the process of land transfer. It's not, it's not exactly quick. Um, so we're currently in that place. Um, we're also doing some um, pre-development grant seeking to um, not only work with the state of Alaska, I think we're looking at some state historic preservation office grants to essentially rebuild the way that it was. Um, so that's, that's kind of currently where we're at. We're just in the pre-development stage right now and working with some grant writers and architects over in Juneau to get the project's momentum and moving so people can see something. Because right now, maybe just to an outsider, it looks like an undeveloped lot, you know? Mm-hmm. And you actually have have the deed to the property, right? So there's there's no question in terms of of the ownership. And so what are your plans going forward? And, and what kind of legal restrictions are you facing in terms of, of how to develop the property to the benefit of all of your clans people? Well, um, the the process is not fast. It's not like immediate transfer. Like when you go and buy a house, they record things the same day. So unfortunately, it's not completely through. I mean, I think I think it will take probably six months to a year. But like I said, we're working on um, some pre-development grants with the state of Alaska. Um, we're also um, in the fundraising stage right now. We're doing um, we're going to be doing a fundraiser here in second December to just kind of do the unveiling and show renderings so people can see something more tangible because right now it's not developed a lot. I don't think there's not a lot of vision in it that people can see. So we've been doing a lot of historical research, um, looking for old photos. um, And James has been great. Um, We pulled some photos from his, he has some actual photos of the demolition. There's also some properties down the road that we've used as kind of a reference point to architectural style and whatnot. And uh, again, I probably might be jumping ahead too far and, James could really um, um, talk more about the architectural style of the village and, and what that looks like for people who are, who are from here who haven't seen it. So do you have a general timeline of when you think it's possible to break ground and, and, and get the new structure built? You know, I don't. You know, one of, the, one of the most challenging things about this is there's not really a model for me to follow. Um, it's uncharted territory for me. I'm a homeowner myself of conventional property over in Juneau, but certainly never taken on a project of this scope. I think one of the major hurdles that we've, uh, that I've run into in the grant seeking process is um, the complexity of like uh, individual land ownership versus um, what we consider collective land ownership um, as a tribal people. And um, part of the problem being is if I add, you know, 10 people to the deed to this, we have to all agree to get something done. And, and the bureaucracy behind getting those things passed through BIA. Um, I know there's some land of trust things that have been in process with BIA since 2016. So it creates a real issue for us because part of part of my issue is finding um, grants that fit individual homeowners or individual landowners right now. We're speaking now with Jarek Hope Lane. He's up in Sitka, Alaska, and he's telling us about this whole process of getting possession of a clan house there. And if you got a question, give us a call. 1-800-996-2848. We're right back after this break. The Biden administration says it wants to work with tribes to co-manage federal land that is also sacred or culturally important. Tribal leaders are talking with officials in the interior and agriculture departments about what that might look like. We'll hear about those efforts on the next Native America Calling. 
Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one-of-a-kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes, healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about Tlingit clan houses today, specifically the story of one in Sitka, Alaska. What are your thoughts or questions on the story of the Point House? Join our conversation at 1-800-996-2848. Again, that's 1-800-996-2848. Before we went to break, we were speaking with Jarek Hope Lange, and he was explaining that really at the heart of this issue and this property is the idea of uh, collective ownership of property, which is the traditional norm there in Alaska and so many other Native communities, as opposed to individual ownership of land, which is uh, more of, of the colonial approach to how property is owned. And, and this uh, this difference, this very, very juxtaposed ideological perspective on who owns land is really at the heart of, of how this clan house uh, and this clan lost control or possession of, of this clan house. And unfortunately, uh, our other guest, Chuck Miller, uh, he had a family emergency, folks. Uh, so unfortunately, Chuck had to leave, so he's not going to be with us for the rest of the show. But I'd like to introduce now uh, a third guest, and she's also in Sitka, Alaska, Louise Brady. And she is also a Kiksadi clan member. She's Tlingit. Louise, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Thank you very much. Um, I will introduce myself in Tlingit. My Tlingit name is Kashich Tla, and um, that was my great-grandmother's Tlingit name. I am Kiksadi from the Point House, which is Kahit, also known as Yukahit. And I'm grandchild of the Kaglantan Wolf Clan, also located here in Sheetka. And we, Kiksadi women, are known as the Herring Ladies. And, of course, our clan house has been here in Sheetka since the we migrated here uh, following the last Ice Age. Wow. Wow. So lots of history there. And thank you for that really, really beautiful introduction, Louise. And can you give our listeners a little bit more of the history of the Point House? So the, the Point House, or Kakahit, is one of the oldest houses of the Kiksadi. And um, as I said, we migrated here following the last Ice Age. Uh, we <clears throat> Kiksadi had originally settled in uh, near, some of us settled near what's now called uh, Wrangell, um, near the Stikin River. And we are one of seven houses. So if you're not familiar with Singit culture, there's moieties, right? There's two, two moieties, right? Every Singit person is born either raven or what's now called eagle, and I'm raven. And under the moiety is the clan, which is Kiksadi. So I'm Raven Kiksadi. And then under Kiksadi are the houses. So as I said, there are seven, there are seven houses that came out of 
Shitka out of Sitka. And then, of course, we also identify with our father's people, our grandfather's people, etc. And so, um, yes, we have many um, what people call stories. I don't like to call them stories. Um, there's a good book title that I love. It's called If This Is Your Land, Where Are Your Stories? So Kiksadi people, we have um, original teachings, I would prefer to call them, that come from this land about uh, the salmon boy. For instance, a lot, of, a lot of tribes have the salmon boy story. We have one that says exactly where, where the salmon boy was born, which is Bachet in a village just north of here. We also have um, <clears throat> an original teaching about a man called Kachachkuk who um, was out seal hunting and got taken away by um, the Pacific uh, Pacific Ocean currents and um, was gone for for years and uh, was able to return. That's Kachachkuk. And we also have many uh, original teachings around um, a shaman that took place out by the volcano that's out to the west of us. Ugh. And I always think that, you know, my, the particular, you know, Kiksadi who came here following the last ice age <clears throat> were very wise because if you ever have the great opportunity to visit Shitka or what's now called Sitka, it's incredibly beautiful and it's a place of amazing bounty. Um, we're surrounded on three sides by mountains that, you know, rise up 2,000 feet. And then to the west is the Pacific Ocean. But as you look out to the Pacific Ocean, there's hundreds of islands that dot <clears throat> the coast. And then further out um, is Kluch, which um, is a volcano. And a lot of people liken it to Mount Fuji in Japan. Mm. But it's an incredibly beautiful place. And the other thing is that it's it's incredibly, it, it's very, very abundant. And I believe that it's because of the herring that we have here. You know, we, my ancestors were so wise and so wonderful for choosing this place because um, it's been a gathering place for thousands of years for other villages in the springtime. Up to a thousand people would come gather here. <clears throat> Louise, you've got me. Uh, was, <laughs> so yeah, the way you're describing it, you've got me ready to to want to jump on a plane and go up there <laughs> right now and visit and check it out. So yeah, it just sounds absolutely uh, breathtaking the way you describe it. And and so and there's a, a huge huge uh, Tlingit population there, if I'm not mistaken. And um, the Point House and and these other town, uh, clan houses, they were all in a specific part of Sitka, which is. Uh, a Tlingit community. Is that how it's all laid out? Correct. Um, all of the clan houses were on what's now called Katlian Street. But of course, since we are, you know, salmon people, canoe people, our clan houses were originally on the beach. And so in front of the clan house, you would, you know, sometimes you would find canoes there. We had canoe rocks that, you know, just lines of like mini boulders that you could pull the canoes up and onto. Mm -hmm. And sadly, um, during World War II, the federal government, the Department of War came in and condemned all of our beachfront property and took it away. 
and following World War II, um, gave it to private landowners and the city of Sitka. So and that's at that point, I'm sorry, Louise. So, so when the, the the beach properties were condemned, given to private landowners, is that when the clan houses then moved onto this street that was more centrally located in in Sitka? Well, I mean, it's only you know, yeah, it's just like across the street from the beach, okay. really. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so, I mean, so you must have grown up then when, when Point House was 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 there, and 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 the Kixadi people were. We're, we're doing ceremonies and events and using it. And then do you remember when it just kind of, it, it just stopped being used? Well, no. So, you know, I mean, the, the, the history of the Kiksadi people is, is tied into very much the uh, colonization through the Presbyterian church. So there were quite a few of uh, <clears throat> Kiksadi people for whatever reason that became members of the Presbyterian church and then we're encouraged to leave the vil- the downtown village, right? Because there was a, a man by the name of Dr. Sheldon Jackson who started the Indian training school. And so many children were encouraged to go there and people were, it, I, I mean, it's really, it's complicated. Okay. So okay. I would say that, you know, it's probably been, it was probably many, many years before I was born that there were ceremonies in the point house and uh, Kahit. Okay. Well, Louise, what was would it in disrepair in the seventies too? Yeah. In the, okay. So 50 years about then. So, so tell us then Louise, I mean, what will restoring the point house mean to you and your other clans people? It's, it's huge because the clan house, we're born into the clan house and that's where we leave this world. It's a clan house. That's where we have, you know, our ceremonies. That's where our identity comes from. We have, um, our history has passed down through clan houses. And so the clan house holds everything that is cultural and spiritual and historical to us because we tell our, we tell our history with these so-called stories. We tell our history with the beautiful carved ceremonial hats. We tell our history with the beautiful robes. And we have been, we're a living culture. And we've been doing, we've been having our ceremonies and we've been passing along our names and our histories. And now we'll have a place to put all of the beautiful and the history that, because we're making history right now. That's mm. like, you know, when we had, that's the beauty of a living culture is that what we are doing today to protect who we are as thinking people, it's just like, I, I hear stories. I hear the history of my ancestors who fought the Russians in 1804 for this land. I envision my great, great grandchildren talking about the, rebuilding of the clan house, of bringing Atu back in, of fighting for the herring, of fighting for our way of life. And it, I, it's, it's monumental. It's monumental. Mm-hmm. Well, Louise, I mean, this issue going forward, though, um, in terms of, of how property is owned um, based on the European models that we all live by, the laws, property rights, uh, all European-based, what is the solution uh, 
to how to pass these clan houses down to future generations. So what happened previously there with Point House and some of these other clan houses doesn't happen again. Well, I think, you know, again, I think that's uh, the beauty of having a living culture. I think, you know, that's the beauty of, you know, Jarek and myself and our other clan members will come together and, and talk about it. I think talk about it openly, because I think if we don't talk about these types of things, these conflicts that arise, out of, not of our own doing, but out of colonization and all of the harm that came from that, if we don't start talking about these things openly, it will happen again. And, and I want to, uh, okay, I'm sorry, um, Louise, I just want to go back and let Jarek chime in as well, because Jarek, I'm, I mean, now you have the deed, um, and hopefully there will be a new client house there uh, before too long. But now how do you ensure that um, this clan house at some point in the future won't find itself in the same legal limbo as, as the previous clan house property? Well, it's a wonderful question because I think the, um, we're going to have to see more will be revealed. I think, you know, ultimately the, the idea of putting it into individual land ownership right now was just out of necessity to remove any, any, um, any outside influence to it. Um, I think, I think land trust is something that we've both discussed and, I have to say, I've had to decolonize myself multiple times from looking at this project because in some ways, you know, you, you feel like you, the land back as a movement, I think is kind of a new, in my mind is fresh and new. Um, but going backwards a little bit and saying, okay, now I have the property, now what? And I have a lot of questions and, and um, this part of the issue of putting um, land into trust for me right now was like, well, what are what are we saying by asking for our land back? If if then in order to get money from um, agencies and and whatnot, that I have to put it back in trust, and and part of that scares me because getting land back, I don't think means giving away yet. So I think a larger discussion needs to be had on this. I don't think the answers exist um, in 21st century terms. I can't go up to somebody in the street and say, "Have you rebuilt your clan house on a native allotment restricted deed property managed by BAA?" There, there isn't, there, there isn't a footprint or, or there isn't a, there isn't a model. Right. So I appreciate having Louise Brady with me because my God, like, as you can tell, she's innovative and she's smart and she's um, together collectively as, as a group will make that decision for the property. It won't be my decision. It'll be in a collective decision with people like Louise. And I appreciate her being part of the conversation because um, without, without people beside me, I, there is no conversation. So um, it, more will be revealed. So, Louise, um, years ago, it was was it just an unspoken agreement then uh, amongst clans people that that they all collectively owned the home and and how it would be transferred to to descendants. Is that how it worked, as opposed to having deeds and trusts and laws like we do now? Right. Exactly. So, you know, for for instance, because. The clan house was the center of governance. And so, you know, there's technical terms about, you know, anthropological terms. But so um, the, the male house leader would live in the clan house. And then there were certain, uh, because we had a food economy, right, there were associated lands um, that came with that, of course, for harvesting. Um, and... So, right, the point house would not go to anyone outside of the clan. So the house would be passed along to the maternal 
nephew, right? Mm. Maternal nephew. Well, Louise, so how many? Whoever. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Please continue. I'm sorry. Oh, to the sisters, you know, who whoever was chosen as the next hit top, hit sati or house leader, who would be trained in all of the tradition and history and songs, through songs and stories of of that particular clan house. So, Louise. Is it safe to say then, in addition to possibly rebuilding a, a physical structure for the clan house for your people, will it also require some cultural revitalization so that clans people understand some of these roles you're describing now and some of these procedures for how to actually occupy and and manage the clan uh, excuse me the clan the clan house? Right, exactly, and I think it's perfect because we can use it as an a traditional educational center, because I think that, you know, I, I did not grow up learning the culture and learning traditions. And there's one of my favorite quotes is, you know, found in a book by a couple of, uh, of Sengit scholars. And it says, tradition cannot be inherited. And if you want it, you must obtain it by great labor. And that's T.S. Eliot. So, because I wasn't raised in the culture, it was people like, you know, Chuck Miller's uncle, who, who um, Herman Davis, who took me in and started teaching me about, you know, how we learn what is our history, because our history is not linear, right? It's like the words that we use in um, in English don't translate well in Tetlingit and vice versa. So I, I think that you know, since most everybody, right, gets a Western education, um, my hope, our hope is that, you know, the Point House becomes this vessel for carrying our history and where people can come in and we aren't exclusive about who becomes a part of, because there has been so much colonization. There has been so much. Louise, I'm sorry, we're going to have to go to break and we'll let you finish those thoughts. So when we come back, 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. That's our number. Stay with us. My name is Assad. When I was 19, my mom was diagnosed with colorectal cancer because she smoked. My tip is find things to be thankful for. I'm thankful she quit smoking. I'm thankful for the nurses who taught me how to check her IV and to manage her medication. And I'm thankful for every day we have together because nothing is guaranteed especially for us. The people you love are worth quitting for. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about keeping the tradition of Tlingit clan houses thriving. And there's still time to join our conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And we're speaking with Louise Brady, and she is a Kixadee clan member. She's up there in Sitka, Alaska. And Louise, before we went to break, you were explaining how not only is this um, this clan house restoration, not only is it possibly a construction project, but it's also a cultural revitalization project. And I want to ask you, how many Kixadee clan members are there? Oh, that's a really good question. And I don't have that answer. Um, there's quite a few. Um, so like I said, there's seven houses and seven clan houses. Um, and for instance, so one of the things that's happened, right, is that, 
uh, many of our people live in other communities. And we had somebody from, it's the uh, Jumping Herring House who passed away several years ago. And a lot of people thought he was the last one in that clan house. And then there was a young woman who came and visited and her mother who came and visited who are from that clan house. And then this year we had a, a ceremony and we had two of, I think it was nine siblings come who have another seven siblings who want to learn their, their culture. And I think they live in Washington. So, um, and some of the houses are fairly large with probably hundreds of, of people in their clan house. So um, that would be a very, it'd be really interesting to find out. Mm. Well, Louise, thanks again for, for all that background and all that history. And we've got another guest now also in Sitka, Alaska, James Polson. He is an architecture historian and photo editor for the Daily Sitka Sentinel. James, welcome to the show. Oh, hi. Thanks, John. Well, James, we'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the architecture, the design, the building uh, of clan houses traditionally. Can you give us some historical details into what went into building some of these clan houses there in Sitka? Yeah, so uh, it's a tradition that goes back, you know, 10,000 years, like Louise was saying. Um, uh, the Clinket, when they came into this area, kind of brought with them uh, a building style that um, people have traced to uh, Japan of all places. So uh, this, um, the original clan houses, um, or as I said, the earlier clan houses uh, would have been uh, planked with uh, kind of vertical planks. The structure uh, that be held up by these posts on the inside, four, four posts that would hold up the, the, uh, the structure and then the, uh, the outer walls were more or less like curtain walls, um, and um, uh, and they would always be facing the water, um, and they'd always, uh, you know, have the have a central door. They're always uh, very symmetrical, and then um, uh, the, the the names of the houses told stories, and um, and they would kind of go into into uh, disrepair, and then they would be torn down, and then a new clan house would be built, and it would kind of reflect the, the kind of the status of that that clan, how big it was, because it would have to accommodate the, the members of the clan. Uh, and so that's how it was. And then when um, up until uh, Russian colonial days, and um, the Russians and the and the Klinkets, uh battled each other, uh, and um, the early 1800s, so um, uh, they were always uh, at each other's throats there at the, at the beginning because uh, the Klinket, you know, would not just uh, just secede the land to the to the to the Russians, and um, uh, and the um, there was two two major battles, one in eight, uh, 1802 uh, that the Klinkets, um, uh prevailed, and then uh, another battle in uh, 1804. Where the Russians um, uh, prevailed, and then they set up uh, uh, the, um, the city of uh, Sitka, where it is today, um, uh, on top of where the crickets were. So, well, that's uh, interesting, yeah. James. So, even going back to to that history, going back uh, well over two hundred years, and um, all these dealings, this invasion by Russia, but. Um, the Tlingits, they didn't adopt the Russian style of building. They, it's more of a Japanese style. That's interesting. 
It's uh, it's they kept their own style. They would um, uh, the the relations between the the Clinton and the, and the Russians were um, they're contentious. But uh, by, by 1820, the Russians realized that they needed uh, you know the Clinkets to to help them out and and uh, for survival uh, the uh, for hunting and and whatnot. So um, yeah, and then the, and then as far as adopting building styles, they yeah the the Clinket and uh, they they adopted one feature I think uh, from the from the Russian style, which was to put a uh, a closure on the on the door on the door. But they they continued to build with these with these vertical planks while the Russians were building log uh, uh, structures. So they the Russians were building uh, kind of according to uh, their traditions, which were uh, from Finland and and northern Russia that area. So. Um, Stack logs, and some of those, some of those are still standing today. But um, the the Clinkets were all, or their tradition was to kind of adapt uh, what they wanted, what they thought was good, and and you know, and uh, um, and you know, as as a, as a culture. So so they were happy with their houses and and, uh, and that style of building. Uh, when the Americans came, everything. Uh, everything kind of uh, went up, and there was a really rapid change. Um, there was a wall that was separating Russians from the from the Klingett, um, and that came down. And um, and then there were uh, within about ten years, all the traditional clan houses were re- re- rebuilt uh, using um, kind of Western style. So this would have been 18, 1867 and onward. Uh, so they. Uh, uh, so these houses uh, were uh, stick framed after, you know, 18, uh, 1870. Uh, they're mm-hmm. kind of they look like just regular houses that you might see, you know, in um, uh, you know Massachusetts or somewhere. You know, they're just uh, uh, balloon framed houses. And then, okay. Uh, yeah. So not not much to distinguish them, but but they do have some features that uh, you could that you know looking at them you, you say. Uh, you know, it just looks like a regular house, but uh, the uh, they were always facing the water, and for the most part, um, the gable end facing the water, and uh, and then there's a symmetry, which is really important in the Clinket culture, and you see that in the in the face of the houses, and um, uh, and that didn't change. Um, yeah, James, then, it, yeah, I'm sorry. So at one point, there were 43 standing clan houses in Sitka's. Indian Village District. That's according to the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. Do you know how many of those are, are still standing? Yeah, um, it's. Uh, I think that somebody came up with the number nine, but um, uh, the uh, it, it's tough because some of these some of these houses. Luis kind of talked about this uh, in the 1940s. Uh, there was a bunch of fill that was put in, so all these houses that would have been up on uh, at the at a, on the beach were now facing a road um and uh and so and then there was um uh uh you know a lot of pressure from the presbyterian church to to get people out of the village and uh you know get rid of the um uh you know just completely ignore clinic culture and and uh and just assimilate into the western um uh culture so uh yeah so and and that 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 was that was a huge, um, you know, had a huge impact on 
on the village and uh, and the clan houses. They they kind of uh, yes. Yeah. So if, James, if you were, if, yeah. Yeah, so you know, with with Point House now, this plan to to rebuild the structure. Um, what are the thoughts there um, amongst? Um, and you know, maybe this is a, if this is a better question for Jarek, we can certainly ask him. But I'm just curious to know what type of architectural style will most likely be employed with this new structure? Will it be that older, older traditional style that you've described, or would it be more of like the the, the Cape Cod, Massachusetts uh, salt box kind of design that? that came in when, when the Americans came up, uh, later. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, that's, you know, not, not my decision, but, uh, and, and when I, I, I wrote my paper on, um, on clan houses and it's, and it's, um, it's very exciting to me because it's not, uh, you know, it's something that hasn't been done. It's, uh, it's, you know, going to be a reflection of a living culture. So whatever comes, comes about, I know, uh, the, the architectural firm that, um, that Jarek is talking about is Northwind Architects, and and they have on their staff um, uh, quite good architects. So, uh, so there's going to be, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure he's he's involved heavily in this project as well. So, okay, let's uh, ask let's uh, ask Jarek if, if that's yeah. okay. Jarek, um, yeah, what are your thoughts in terms of of rebuilding Point House? Uh, in terms of the architectural style, what what would you what, what would people most like to see? Something more more traditional going back to the way they were originally years and years ago like what louise described or, or something more contemporary my my vision board is packed um I, I think i think internally i want the house to function traditionally so I, I would like to pull the traditional elements i think um i vernacular is a word that i was not familiar with until i read james's thesis so i think when you look at i mean if you're looking at catlian street um, there's a certain visual history that already exists. So we don't want to buck that trend. We, I, I want to maybe not, not blend in, be part of, the, part of the fabric of the village. So I think without being from here and not being able to, especially when you're water-facing, looking towards the village, um, there's a certain style that just is there. So we, we want to continue that. Fortunately for me, um, you know, James also laid the groundwork for me being able to look at old photos and even in the teardown gives us some reference point to how it was built. So the beauty of this is like the firm can look at those photos and say, oh, I'm familiar with the, with the structurally how this thing was built. Because, you know, conceptually we've talked about the house physically not being there. Um, the house exists to us inside of us. Um, and I think I speak for Louise on this too, that, that the, the house is, even though it's not there in its physical structure, is a living form. So um, I, 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 you know, when renderings come out, I think we'll look at them and we'll discuss and share. But we're looking to be part of the architectural fight that already exists in that village. Okay. And James, uh, you know, you wrote your master's thesis on clan house architecture, and then what about other Tlingit communities uh, beyond Sitka? Are there similar clan houses, and are, are some of those clans also facing some of these same issues that the folks in Sitka are, are dealing with now with their clan houses? Yeah, there's clan houses in um, in Angoon and um, yeah, and clicker villages are all all around Southeast Alaska. So um, yeah, and and um, you know, my interest is in historic preservation, and it's kind of a it's kind of a changing um, uh, field. It's it, it's a kind of combination of you know the um, uh, the sciences and also the humanities and uh, kind of determining, you know, what is what you're preserving is very important these days. And so 
Um, so there's like a clan house, uh, the Chief Kashyyyk's clan house that is, that uh, was restored, um, I think, using some Park Service funding. Um, uh, but that was, you know, the traditional uh, uh, traditional, uh, the Western traditional way, you know, is just uh, 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 restoring it using the same materials and kind of keeping it in its, uh, you know, 1920s form, keeping the house in that 1920s form. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but you know, historic preservation should also in, uh, you know include the uh, the cultural uh, changes that that we that we see. You know, because you know the Korean culture is a living and it's a uh, you know vibrant ex- in, uh, culture. So um, absolutely, uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So yeah, okay. Um, well, Jarek, earlier you touched on um, fundraising because this project, obviously, um, you know, there's a cost here. So where can our listeners go to just learn more about the Point House Restoration Project and, and some of these other issues that you folks are dealing with up there in Sitka right now? Well, it is going to be pointhouse.org. We have a place card holder in place, but I've been, we're actively trying to write a grant that's due at the end of the month. So please bear with me until the end of the month. I'm also Jericho Blang on social media. I'm also Jericho Blang in the grocery store in Sitka and in Juneau, where I live. Um, so I would recommend you approach me there. You know, I do want to touch on this because I think it's really important to this. And I want to make this happen by the end of the fixes conversation, too, that we look at, you know, the complexity of this right now is individual land ownership. And when we talk, talk about collective land ownership not being in trust, I think we also need to look at institutions in Seattle who are philanthropic, who are giving money. Because we, it may be time that we decolonize the structures that exist within grant-giving processes that would force us to give our land to somebody to manage for us. Um, you know, I don't know that land to trust fits the land back model for individual clans. I'm not sure of that. Like we talked about earlier, I think one of the biggest struggles we found is that, you know, in order for us to be considered for any historic grants and whatnot, for the most part, people want things in trust or a nonprofit. Um, as tribal people, I don't think we have to form a nonprofit. So I would encourage um, um, indigenous grant givers as well as people who give to the indigenous community to maybe look at the structure of giving um, because we don't fit the mold. I think I think there's a lot to this that that unfortunately will leave us in the dark. But um, I'm looking forward to anybody you know reaching out and, and if you are a giver and this fits the mold of what you're doing. Well, number one, good for you. And number two, we would love to hear from you. Um, like I said, we're putting in a state, state historic preservation office grant now for pre-development, and hopefully we'll see more. But uh, I think a bigger conversation could be had about decolonizing the grant-giving process. Jarek, thank you for, for making those closing points there. And I think that's so important for our listeners to understand um, at the heart of this, again, this collective versus individual ownership of land. And especially, um, you know, like, Maybe trust isn't the solution, just something completely innovative, something more indigenous. So uh, best of luck to you and all of your clans people moving forward. And folks, we have now reached the end of our hour. I want to thank all of our guests for this enlightening conversation on the legacy and future of Tlingit clan houses in Sitka, Alaska. Join us next week. We'll have a whole new lineup of discussions about indigenous topics and issues. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPollin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. 
Clifton Chadwick is our National Underwriting Sales Director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our Chief Operations Officer. The President and CEO of Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Have a great weekend. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. Work with experts in the field to form strategies and build relations to better the future of repatriation at the 8th Annual Repatriation Conference, October 11th, 12th, and 13th, hosted by the Association on American Indian Affairs and the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians. Learn more at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanek Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.